When the pandemic hit our world in 2020, I couldn't have imagined a more vivid global experience to expose the harmful effects of isolation and being alone. And as you know, it led to extreme loneliness for people, heightened mental illness, unchecked domestic abuse, uncontrolled substance abuse and overdoses, exploding suicide rates, and more. And I remember thinking, I won't need to preach on the human need for community for a long time. Because it was obvious. And yet, looking at our world today, I get the sense that we haven't really learned this lesson. Or even if we have, we still struggle with it. Maybe even more than before. Social anxiety has continued ratcheting up among young people. But for all of us, I think we're, we're desperate for meaningful relationships, and yet we're scared to death of them. Dropping pandemic restrictions has not cured us of our endemic loneliness. One study showed that 61% of adults today feel lonely, 71% of millennials, 79% of Gen Z... It's not a good trend. And plenty of people, believers even, are still vastly under-prioritizing community life, which is meant to grow us in love and faith and endurance and encouragement. Just maybe God was right when he said it was not good for man, for people to be alone. And if it wasn't good then, before the fall, at the very beginning, how much worse has the curse made things for us? Like our sin our, and the consequences have thoroughly distanced us from one another. And yet the goodness of living life together hasn't disappeared. It's more challenging now, but it is as important as ever, if not more so, that we learn to love one another as Christ has loved us and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 at this time. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. This is, of course, the Old Testament book of wisdom that evaluates life under the sun, which I believe to be talking about life in a fallen, cursed, physical world, the world we live in now. And in examining life as it is, not how it was intended to be or how it eventually will be, Ecclesiastes tends to be a brutally honest book. Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick, once called it the truest of all books. Is Ecclesiastes, the truest of all books. One of the, the clearest examples of this honesty comes here at the beginning of chapter 4, where Solomon talks about the oppression we unleash on our fellow human beings. And this doesn't come out of nowhere. Near the end of chapter 3, if you were with us last week, he talked about injustice. He said, verse 16 of chapter 3, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So God will right all of our wrongs one day, but wrongs there still are. A plenty. 
And as we come to chapter 4, he says, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Now Solomon doesn't tell us what kinds of oppressions he saw. But one could imagine that this included economic injustice, tyranny, subjugation, forced labor or slavery, unjust courts or prisons, poverty, slums, slumlords, toxic marriages and families, and, and the like. Today, we may think of human trafficking and slavery or prostitution, child labor, sweatshops, the dark side of colonialism, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and of course, warfare with all of its horrors. Along with the smaller, more local scale of domestic, child, and sexual abuse. Like we may have new terms for things, but there's nothing really new under the sun. There were great evils in Solomon's day, and there are great evils in our day. The imbalances and abuses of power are a reality of life in a broken world. Now, power is not inherently oppressive. That's a, a false Marxist belief. And yet, power mixed with sinful humanity does easily breed oppression. Solomon observed many of the same things that history has taught us. Right? How, how common oppression is, how power pervades our relationships, and, and so on. However, look closely here. Was Solomon lamenting oppression itself or something else? It looks to me like he's really more bemoaning a result of oppression, and that's isolation. Right? Do you see that? It's repeated for emphasis. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. It sounds quite similar to Jeremiah's cries and lamentations, who was writing right in the midst of oppression. He said, they heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. We may tend to think that inequality or inequity is what makes oppression especially bad. But God's word seems to think a bit differently than us and tells us that, that perhaps the worst part of oppression is the relational effects it has on its victims. In other words, the only thing worse than being oppressed is being oppressed and alone. And the first major point I think we can glean from Ecclesiastes 4 is that being alone is worse under the sun. Being alone is made worse. It's worsened. It's intensified as we live in a fallen world under the sun. You could say that loneliness intensifies pain and the curse of sin intensifies loneliness. So when we're being oppressed... Being alone adds insult to injury, and injury to insult. Picture 
an abused spouse or child feeling helpless in their suffering. Why do they feel helpless? Because they feel that no one is there to really help them, to help them escape. Or imagine the extreme loneliness felt by slaves throughout history, trafficked to new lands, separated from family members, abandoned seemingly by everyone, by the humanity around them. Or maybe a persecuted believer in a closed country, thrown into solitary confinement. What's arguably the worst part of the persecution for them? The isolation, the cutting off from their community. I could go on with other examples, but being alone is much worse when sin is involved. Can you, can you hear just Solomon just sighing here? And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. There's no one to comfort them. It reminds me of when the Bible says Jesus sighed or even wept in his time on earth. Seeing a, a blind man's deep suffering in Mark 7, it says that he sighed before healing him. Seeing the Pharisees' blindness of heart, says he sighed deeply in his spirit. Or seeing the death of Lazarus, the grief surrounding it, Jesus wept. He saw how, how God's beautiful world was twisted out of shape, and he groaned over it. Like the, the groaning here in Ecclesiastes. But Jesus not only grieved over these things, he had the power to do something about them. And he healed, he confronted, he even raised the dead. Signs of what was to come and what is to come. But even now, he's left his spirit wit to be with us, not coincidentally called the comforter. The comforter. So now, no matter what other people may do to us, God will never abandon us if we are his. But Solomon, from his vantage point, was only seeing the, the pain of oppression and isolation, and that leads him down a much darker path. Look in verse 2. He says, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Verse 2 in other versions has him saying, so I congratulated the dead. The, the dead, or even better yet, the unborn, don't need to experience all this. And we're taken aback by this extreme conclusion and left with all kinds of questions. Is this true? Is this an orthodox belief? If not, was Solomon simply wrong here? Was he actually suggesting that we might be better off dead? And wouldn't that promote things like suicide? Now, to be extremely clear, I don't believe Solomon was commending taking our own lives in any way or any fashion. He had just stared into the evil of depraved human behavior long enough to cause him to despair over the bleak state of our world. So Solomon's thinking out loud, like, 
maybe the dead or the unborn are happier than the living. And in some ways, that's true, right? Or at least partially true. We believe that for Christians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, where there are pleasures forevermore. We also are sometimes relieved when death ends our loved one's suffering. Further, parents try to protect their kids' innocence about very evil things in life, and we grieve the loss of what we call childhood innocence, not having to see these things. So in these senses, we would agree with Solomon here. However, in another sense, we disagree in that under the sun is talking about the fallen world not yet factoring in redemption. And redemption changes things. Because redemption takes broken things and restores them, renews them. To, to quote Andrew Peterson in likely my favorite song, it says, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and redeemed by love. It is a better thing. And as we wait for our full redemption, our hope now makes life well worth living and enjoying, like Solomon has been talking about. But anyway, as a, as a basic observation of life under the sun, Solomon's observation holds true. If we see no redemption coming, then the oppression of this world can seem unbearable. And in this, he sounds like other faithful people in Scripture who at times despaired of life, like Job, wishing to have been born stillborn, or Elijah, asking God to take his life. Or maybe most so, Jeremiah again, who cried out, Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Movie director Woody Allen, not so faithful a man, once talked about why he made movies. And he said it wasn't because he had some grand statement to offer but simply to take his mind off the existential horror of being alive. He said the movies are a great diversion as it, to take his mind off of this, to, as it's much more pleasant to be obsessed over how the hero gets out of his predicament than it is over how I get out of mine. Really, we can only take so much. We can only co we cope with the darkness that comes through diversions, distracting ourselves, social media, or streaming videos, or Saturday Night Live. Just laugh it all away. But if it can seem better to not exist than to be alone in pain, that makes a lot of sense of our world, doesn't it? It can explain why MAID, aka euthanasia, has taken off, right? has even become a leading cause of death in Canada. It's not good to be alone, especially in pain and suffering. And so many people are choosing that most terrible of options to end it all. Christians can and should decry how evil 
and even ironically oppressive maid is. However, those who are seeking this, wanting this, shouldn't have our judgment, but our sympathy. I think it should be a wake-up call to us to love our neighbors way better than we have. To watch out for those around us who are isolated or left alone or abandoned. To reach out with compassion and friendship to the vulnerable. And if you find yourself in such a dark and lonely place today, seek out someone to talk to. Don't just assume that other fellow sinners are going to see your suffering. Reach out to them for help. And don't give up on life. As we go on here, we see the, the far-reaching effects of sin aren't only seen in outright oppression, but they can actually be seen in the way both you and I have worked at our jobs. <laughs> Look at verse 4. It says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after win. All work, all skill, toil and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Really? All work and skill come from envy? Well, that might be hyperbole. But when you stop and think about it, envy, or you could say rivalry or unhealthy competition, is much more pervasive than we realize. It's subtle and it's everywhere. Right? Our motives, our ambitions are all convoluted and com compromised by the sin in our hearts. We get educated because we want to be educated like others in our society. We get a job because we want to make money like others around us. And we make money in order to buy things like our neighbors have. And envy just feeds vanity. As it says, this also is vanity and is striving after wind. It's, it's ungraspable, like steam from a kettle. What we want can't be got. Or it can, but it can't be kept. It's vanity. And if you think further on it, envy and rivalry have an isolating effect on us, don't they? It's much harder to love your peers or your coworkers or your neighbors or your fellow church members when you're actively envying who they are or what they have. When you're doing this, like it's so easy to, to pat a friend on the back when they succeed at something, but to secretly envy them because we now feel worse about ourselves. How, how deep our depravity runs. May we repent and refuse to isolate ourselves from each other by envying one another. We'll need the grace of God for this as, as the struggle's real here under the sun, where sin has corrupted every heart, selfishness reigns supreme, where we step on our neighbors beneath us in order to chase the neighbors above us. So then, if envy permeates so much work, then maybe it's better not to work at all. Oh, nope. <laughs> 
<laughs> Verse 5 says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's talking about idleness, laziness, or sloth, which are also sins. Now, pre-fall, mankind worked hard for the glory of God. Toil is not wrong. It's just been corrupted. Same thing with rest. Rest was a gift from God for us, but it too has been corrupted. Now, folding hands refers to resting in unhealthy ways, to the point of inactivity, or passivity. You know the verse, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Solomon's clear that, that resting to avoid work altogether is foolish. So foolish, in fact, that you might as well be self-cannibalistic. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. In other words, through complacency, we will unwittingly destroy or ruin ourselves. Or as the message paraphrases it, sloth is slow suicide. David Gibson says that this verse illustrates the corrosive effects of inverted excess. Instead of embracing life and giving himself to others, the sluggard gives himself to himself. So in the end, all that he has left is himself, and that won't last for long. I don't know about you, but I find it much easier to do nothing of value if I'm by myself. Right? If, if I'm alone and no one else is seeing me be lazy or irresponsible, yet another way that being alone is made worse, being under the sun. Loving our neighbor, on the other hand, helps prevent this idleness, this laziness, because it turns our eyes outward to others. It also helps prevent the opposite extreme of frantic busyness, always rushing from one self-focused pursuit to the next, or even frantically pursuing good things, losing sight of what God has already given us, constantly working so hard for tomorrow because we assume tomorrow is going to be better than today. Look at verse 6, where it says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. A striving after wind. And all the introverts breathe a sigh of relief here. <laughs> Phew! We don't have to be with other people all the time. Correct. But that's not the point here. The point is to be content with what God's placed in our hand instead of striving like crazy for what might as well be wind gusting through our fingers. The word for quietness means a, a restful peace of mind or a calmness of soul. It's like when we sing, it is well with my soul. We're saying that no matter what's raging around me out here, it's all right here. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Tim Keller explained that here, Solomon is saying that satisfaction in work in a fallen world is always a miraculous gift of God. 
And yet we have a responsibility to pursue this gift through a particular balance. Tranquility without toil will not bring us satisfaction. Neither will toil without tranquility. There will be both toil and tranquility. You know what are the best ways to cultivate this this handful of quietness in your heart? To recognize that your toil is not all about you. It's God's gift to you. In order for you to love him and to serve him and to serve those he's placed around you. We're blessed to be a blessing. Most importantly, I'd say we, would need to re- we need to repent of our sins and receive Jesus Christ as our Lord if we haven't done that. Because if sin is the problem that makes isolation worse, then we need sin to be dealt with. We need sin to be taken care of. And that's what Jesus does. He reconciles us to himself and to each other through the cross where he was isolated and abandoned so that we could be gathered together. He now offers us forgiveness for all of our sins, for all these things we're talking about, the oppressions, the way we hurt one another, our envy, our sloth, our idolatry of work. Like Christ is our only hope for this. In life and in death. So I would say commit your life to him today. And then we should all join in Christ, join Christ in the ministry of reconciliation. Bringing peace to all we can. So it's not good to be alone. It's even worse under the curse. Being alone makes something worse too. Especially with sin involved. And that's work. Remember, work is not a bad thing at all. It's not the problem here. But our work is now cursed. And when we combine cursed work with cursed relationships, that's a potent combo. In our fallen world, we are prone to work by ourselves and for ourselves. And that's a problem. See, working hard is worse when toiling alone. Working hard is worse when toiling alone. Now, I'm not talking about the ability to work independently or when you're by yourself. Some people can work better in quiet. Others can work better in the middle of chaos. So I'm not talking about the environment we work in, but about our manner of work and our motives for work. Put it this way. If I am working in isolation from relationships, it's unhealthy. Like, even when I work alone, hopefully I'm still working as a team with others. Pastor Kenny and our staff, our elders, our deacons, our volunteers, many of you. Like, we have a shared mission that we're working on together as a community. So if I cut myself off from that and just try to do my own thing, I'm off base. And if I'm working for my own personal benefit and no one else's, that's even worse. And that's what I mean by toiling alone, not in community with others and not for others. It's all about you and all for you. Be forewarned. That's Total vanity. Look at verse 7. It says, Again, 
I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business, always toiling, never satisfied. It's the direct opposite of the contentment described in verse 6. I think it sounds like John Morant, the NBA superstar, who recently posted, it's a different story for me. It seems I got everything that I ever dreamed, but I can't find no peace. Everything I ever dreamed, but no peace. This guy... Solomon observed was totally alone. And why? Because his work was his life. Have you seen people like that before? People who let relationships, their relationships suffer in order to make more money or to secure the next promotion or the next upgrade. Are you like this? We so easily think, I think we delude ourselves that we are working all for our loved ones around us when we're really just seduced by selfish ambition and vain conceit or greed. Maybe stop and ask yourself right now about your school or your job or your housework or your hobbies. For whom am I toiling? What are you aiming for? What are you hoping to accomplish? Who is your paycheck for? Who are you hoping benefits from all your work? Even if you honestly think that you're working for others around you, what do they actually want from you? Your riches and your will? Or do they want a relationship with you now? What would benefit them most? Your endless toil or your present love? One handful of contented peace or two handfuls of wind? If you never consider these things, you may just get sucked into toiling alone like most people in our world. And that makes our work so much worse, both now and in the long run. Another thing to notice here, though, is that depriving yourself of pleasure isn't necessarily good. He says, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Again, we must seek balance. God wants us to work, to rest, and for us to enjoy both. The best way to do that is to not do it all for yourself and your own gain. When you, or when we love our families and our churches and our neighbors by working for them, and we love them with the fruits of our labor and our wealth, a funny thing happens, and we end up actually loving ourselves the best. And above all, as today we should seek to put Colossians 3, 23 and 24 into practice. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord 
you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So, being alone is worse under the sun. Working hard is worse when toiling alone. And this all builds up to the big core idea that Solomon wants to get across positively this time. That life in a fallen world is better together. Still a fallen world, but life in this fallen world is better when it's lived together. And he makes this point with a very familiar verse for most of us. Verse 9 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Every time I read this verse, I get the slugs and bugs song in my head. <laughs> two are better than one. Two are better than one. Parents, you're welcome. <laughs> but remember, the main question Solomon's trying to answer in Ecclesiastes, what does man gain? And what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Here we get another answer. There is good reward or good gain in life together. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. In the area of work, when two work together, they can get twice the amount of work done. That's simple enough. Like you could help each other succeed, share the work, share the wealth. Besides, everyone knows it's better to work together. Just think of the, the popular sayings we like to spout off. The more the merrier. Many hands make light work. There's strength in numbers. Now, there's a cost to doing life together, of course. It demands being willing to pour yourself out, to use your energy, your time, your wealth in love, generosity, and service, like Jesus did. But if there is really good reward in doing this, then it will all be well worth it in the end. The next three verses give three illustrations of how life is better together, even now, in the context of falling, sleeping, or fighting. Or if you want to use some alliteration, in catastrophe, in cold, and in conflict. First in verse 10. Okay, two are better than one, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. One time I sprained my ankle during an ultimate Frisbee game. I rolled it in a rut in the grass, immediately fell to the ground in pain. I had two friends come alongside me and help lift me up put my arms over their shoulders for support as I limped off. But if I had rolled my ankle, say, when I was out for a run or on a hike by myself, I'd be helpless. And being alone can be a literal physical risk to our well-being. Seniors know this well. That's why we buy them those little necklaces that alert you if you fall. Falling would have been even more perilous in Solomon's day. It could be catastrophic without any technology to, in an emergency to alert people of. 
and having a companion along could save your life. But being alone is a spiritual risk too. And what happens when you fall spiritually into some sin or struggle? Will there be someone there to help lift you up? Who do you run to in those times? Or from the other side, will you be there to help someone else to their feet? To paraphrase Bonhoeffer, when strong people fall, weak ones have to guard against malicious joy at their downfall. And when the weak fall, the strong need to be kind. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate companion, our strong and kind friend who walks with us and who lifts us up after we fall. I mean, we literally call our descent as humanity into sin the fall. Praise the Lord that though I was born fallen in a fallen world, Jesus was there for me. Second illustration, verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? This could be talking about intimacy in a marriage bed. After all, it was in that context when God originally said it's not good for man to be alone. But in that day, two people lying in sleep together didn't automatically mean something questionable or sexual. Sometimes you had to do so just to keep warm. Unless you wanted hypothermia. So two are better than one because it can keep you warm and, and comfortable through a night. And third, verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. So you can imagine maybe someone trying to mug you at knife point. And can you fight them off yourself? Maybe, maybe not. Might not be wise to try to fight back. But even if you tried, they may well defeat you or prevail against you. You stand much better chances, however, if there were two of you fighting in self-defense. And it's in this context that one of Ecclesiastes' most famous sayings appears. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So take a rope that has three strands and try to snap it or sever it by hand. It's almost impossible. Now, you might have heard this verse read at weddings before, maybe even by me. As if a husband and a wife are two strands of the cord and God is the third. Might be a stretch. <laughs> actually, a closer parallel of a family's third, third cord may actually be children, believe it or not. But the, the point of a threefold cord is more general than either of those. It's, it's adding to two being better than one, saying, Three is even better. Like, three is better than two. <laughs> three is better than two. In any kind of community, including Christian community, there is strength in numbers. 
So, are you committed to fighting against isolation in your life? Are you intentionally invested in relationships? Do you have quality friendships? More specifically, do you have a Christian community surrounding you? And more than just sitting with other people on Sunday mornings, though that is vital. This is one of the the main reasons we keep pushing small groups here at Calvary. Because we need frequent community as God's people together. In In a dangerous world, you could say, we need others to help lift us up when we fall. In a cold world, we need others to keep our spirits warm. And in a hostile world, we need others to help defend our hearts. Life in a fallen world is better together. We need each other now more than ever. Remember, we read earlier Hebrews which tells us to not neglect to meet together, but to encourage one another, and all the more, increasingly so, as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. In the meantime, Christians will still feel aloneness. This isn't a magic bullet, but the gospel is at work at eradicating it. And the family of God is really undoing the pain of aloneness. Now in part, and one day in full. It's like, it's a privilege to get to play a part in this ongoing reversal of the curse. Life is better together. But even then, living together doesn't solve everything. Even with community, the curse of aloneness persists. We still need something more. As being alone erases power and achievement. It's going to be the final point we see. Being alone, especially in the ultimate isolation of death, erases power and achievement. It erases fame, wealth, everything we pursue here. Consider this rags to riches to ruin story as the chapter ends. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and is striving after wind. If you didn't follow, there's this poor, young, wise man who who somehow went from the lowest reaches of society, prison even, to become king. You replace this A proud old king who had become foolish, no longer listening to advice. Perhaps a helpful warning to those who are getting older. Never get too set in your ways to listen to what others have to say. But anyway, this guy's successor, or his supplanter, this zero to a hero, attracted huge throngs of followers. He had a a great heyday. Verse 16 said, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. 
But unfortunately, that, or ultimately, that won't matter. Eventually, he'll be replaced too. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Future generations may not even like him anymore. Rejecting his work, his legacy. Derek Kinder says he reaches the pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. And we, of course, still see this happen all the time. How many politicians from our past, even our present, are looked on very favorably now? Not many. In the Bible, Joseph comes to mind as a similar story, going from prison to a throne in Egypt. And yet the book of Exodus starts with a new king in Egypt who didn't know Joseph, didn't remember him. So even with all of his great exploits, Joseph was quickly forgotten. And that ended up leading to centuries of brutal oppression for the Hebrew people, which takes us right back to the beginning of chapter 4. All of our power and popularity and success and fame and achievements will be erased by the passage of time. No matter how many people we gather around us in life, they can't accompany us through death. Even vast amounts of friends can't solve the human condition we all find ourselves in. In fact, side note, Meaningful community can actually be harder in bigger crowds. That's why this guy gets stranded at the height of popularity. It's why as our church grows, we have to be way more intentional about it. No matter what we accomplish, we will inescapably die and be forgotten. Thus, isolated. In John Steinbeck's classic book, East of Eden, he says, When a man comes to die, no matter what his talents and influence and genius, if he dies unloved, his life must be a failure to him and is dying a cold horror. If those who come later will not rejoice in him, surely this also is vanity, is striving after wind. Feels kind of like the, the curse has the final laugh here, doesn't it? But does it really? Do we die unloved? Or can we approach death deeply loved by the unshakable love of God? Do we have a king who will die and be forgotten? Or do we have a king who has died and yet lives and who will never be forgotten? And even now, if we've been brought together into God's family, are we truly alone? Or has God wonderfully gifted us with each other to help walk this broken road? Isolation's pain is real, and it can hurt even more when we know we're missing out on something God intends for us to have and to experience, but that won't last.
forever. The gospel is redeeming and restoring a community to the way it was meant to be all along, and thus we have an unbelievably bright future gathered together around our King. God, please open our eyes to you today and help us to go from here confident in your love for us, filled with your Holy Spirit, and loving one another as you would have us love one another and as you loved us. We pray for your help in this, in Jesus' name, amen.